Good morning, church. You're all looking so good today. You're welcome, Rick. I mean that. Comes from right here, brother. <laughs> Guys, you need a Bible. If you want to get a Bible and follow along with us, we have a couple of fellas poised prepared to hand them to you. Just raise your hand, they'll find you. And uh, we're so glad you're here with us today just to study God's word, worship him in spirit and in truth. He is worthy of all that we are. And so much more than what we have to offer, amen? And uh, we're glad you're with us online as well. If you have tuned in for some reason or unable to attend in person, we're grateful to be able to extend just an opportunity to uh, get God's word to you as well. So let's take our Bibles, guys, and uh, turn in them to the book of James. We're looking at the fourth chapter. Uh, we're going to finish chapter four today, verses uh, four through uh, seven, pardon me, seven through 17, James four, seven through 17. And the title of the message is uh, what repentance looks like. Sorry, my wife texted me there and then it went boop, boop, boop in my iPad and I don't want that distraction. So um, let me see what she, she said here. Oh, oh, I love you too, babe. I'm just going to say that. I'm just going to say that. Let's leave it at that. All right. James chapter four. Okay, I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. This is going to kill her. But she, where is she? <laughs> She's looking at me. And I, she loves to flirt with me when I come up here. And, and, uh, and, I, and I love it as well. I love her. I love you, babe, with all my heart and beyond. She doesn't distract me while I'm teaching, but there's usually a little something that hits me right before I get started. You know what I'm saying? So isn't God good? Man, hey, guys, a healthy marriage. Man, I love my wife more now than the day we got married, you know. And that, and that was, what, 27, 28, I don't know how many, long time ago, uh, days, you know, that, no, years, years, 28 years, I'm just playing with you on that. But uh, James chapter 4, let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father, once again, we just uh, thank you for your grace and mercy, and I thank you, Lord, uh, that you uh, love us, that you have given yourself for us. And uh, Lord, it's our desire now to want to, as you have said, uh, learn of you. And so I pray, God, that you would just transform us, uh, Lord, that we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we study your word. And Lord, that uh, your word and your ways would uh, be infectious in us and contagious through us, Lord, that others might see you for who you are. We pray, God, just for a great outpouring of your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Family, James was writing to a people riddled with conflict, uh, wars, contentions, strife, and divisions. People gunning for position, for preeminence, wanting prestige and prominence among and above their peers, wanting to be recognized as the uh, wise and understanding, gifted of God teacher in their midst. In short, many were wrestling with the destructive problem of pride. But what James is ultimately leading up to is that for all of these problems that they're having in their relationships with one another, 
it's really only indicative, follow me here, uh, it's only symptomatic of a much deeper problem, and that is their, in their relationship with God. Remember that royal law that James reminded us of back in chapter 2, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you remember right, when Jesus made clear that all the law and all the prophets were summed up in two commands, he said that the first and the greatest commandment was this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The greatest priority of my life, the greatest priority of your life is to make sure that things are right between you and God, that you're loving him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But the second, Jesus said, is like the first, you shall love your neighbor, that is whomever happens to be within your proximity, with near to your vicinity, uh, you know, as yourself, which is to say Treat others with the same kindness, the same compassion, that same uh, consideration as you would have extended to you. And these two commandments, Jesus said, essentially they are connected to one another. The one necessarily affects and impacts the other. You see, as the body of Christ, if I'm not right with God, then how is it that I could be right with you? You see, the Bible is clear. Can two walk together lest they be agreed? Uh, Things are out of order. Well, what then is the necessary course of action? Well, a restoration and reconciliation in my walk and relationship with God. Uh, Now, last week, we looked at the cause and the consequence, if you remember right, of the wars and fights and being worldly in our ways. Today, James establishes the cure. So the cause, the consequence, and the cure is kind of how the chapter lays out. Now, as the curtain closed on our time together, it was with these words in verse 6 that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now let's recall exactly what that means. When God resists, it means that God sets himself essentially in battle ray against the proud. The proud being the one uh, who would show or consider oneself to be over or above another. That's what it means. But God gives grace, that is his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor to the humble. Now the humble is the one who esteems the needs of others above their own. And guys, it's not that humility earns us God's grace, okay? But rather that it sets us in that position to receive the grace that God gives freely. Does that make sense? Okay, so you're with me. Let's draw our attention, turn our attention uh, to verse 7 here in chapter 4 where we pick up where we last left off. It says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to note, draw attention to, underline, highlight, circle, do something. Notice how many commands are packed or imperatives, right? Are packed in this short section of scripture. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, lament, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, you want to know what repentance looks like? This is it. Bless you. It begins with, well, the word is submission to God. James says, hey, you know, this word therefore, when we see the word therefore in scripture, I want you to realize that it's typically, uh, how would you say, it's a hinge word, it's a hinge upon which a principle becomes practical, right? Therefore, what is it therefore? Well, it's usually predicated upon what preceded it. And so James is saying, hey, in light of the fact That God sets himself against the proud, but offers grace to the humble, there's only one appropriate course of action, and that is submit to God. Surrender to God. Subject yourself to his authority in and control over your life. Look, recognize God as your king, the one who has conquered you and begin to uh, receive the benefits of his reign. Family, you know, if you think about it, at least to me, it seems truly amazing that the world refuses to submit to God. And it's no small wonder that even as believers, we struggle to fully submit to God. I mean, I want you to think through how masterfully destructive Satan's strategy has been over the last mm, 150, maybe 200 years to promote the idea or the theory, hypothesis, whatever you want to call it, uh, that God is not our creator. You know, and Satan doesn't care if you want to believe that we came from a big bang. He doesn't care if you want to believe that we somehow evolved, uh, that our planet was seeded by aliens, or, you know, whatever set of random cosmic coincidences. But the fact that people will so readily, almost universally, reject, dismiss the reality of God as our creator has put it in people's minds that they don't have to submit to him. And think about it, guys, if you truly believed, I mean, you really believed that God was your creator, that there was an almighty God in heaven who formed you, who fashioned you, who placed the breath of life within you. He was the reason that you exist. Well, you would readily understand that on some level, 
You have an obligation to him, a responsibility to submit to him, to honor him, to obey him. But man doesn't like that. And it's a tragedy. Man has put out of their mind the one who gave them that mind. You know, man has placed out of their sight the one who gave them eyes to see. They'll look to nearly anything or anyone outside of him. God gave man legs, but they've walked away from him. They used the breath he gave them to curse both him and those whom he created in his image. And listen, there's a sense in which um, it could almost be honorable, this rebellion or uh, resistance. It can seem almost courageous when you're under the rule of a tyrant or a dictator or something, you know, but that's not God. God is good. He has thoughts of peace and not of evil toward you to give you a future and a hope. But rather than submit to God and resist the devil, well, most people have that flip, don't they? Most people resist God and submit to the devil. Because the terrible truth is that to resist God is to submit to the devil. There's no neutral zone. Isn't that what Jesus taught? He said, you're either for me or you're against me. The one who doesn't gather scatters abroad. There's no like fence row to walk down. Therefore, to the positive, on the one hand, James says, submit to God. And on the other, to the negative, resist the devil. The one constitutes the other. If you don't submit to God, then you won't resist the devil. So he says, listen, order yourself under God's control. Take your stand against the devil. Uh, Paul said that like this. He said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, here's our words, stand against the wiles. I mean, you know what wiles mean? You remember, I'm going to date myself. Mm -hmm. Wiley Coyote. He was always scheming. He was always strategizing. He was always planning on ways to take out the roadrunner, right? Well, the wiles of the devil means the scheming strategies, the trickery, the cunning deceitfulness, the planning and plotting of the devil. And then, of course, Paul goes on to elaborate upon the armor of God and what that means, what it entails, how it looks in your life and all. But we're to be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. We're to resist or take our stand against the devil. How? Well, you know, through prayer, through worship, uh, through God's word. You see, when Jesus was tempted of the, he would combat the enemy through the word of God. Thy word have I hid in my heart, the psalmist said that I might not sin against you? How can a young man or young woman, it's just kind of a whomever, uh, how can a young man purify their heart? How can a young man purify their way? Well, by taking heed according to your word. Through fellowship with God's people, that spiritual cross-pollination, as I like to refer to it as, we need one another, and he will flee. 
In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that we're not to give place, or the, the word is opportunity, uh, to the devil. You know, there you are, and uh, you're at home, and maybe it's Sunday morning, you're up early, you're thinking about coming to church, when suddenly you kind of get this kind of splitting headache, your head starts, or maybe your kids start whining, whatever the case may be, but it causes you to say, you know what, forget it. You know, let's just stay home. There's the opportunity. Do you see that? The opportunity that the devil is ceasing, uh, seizing to take advantage of. And so here's what I'm saying. Like if you allow that headache or that spat or that, you know, frustration or whatever, aggravation, whatever the case may be, that you just go, you know what? Just forget it. I'm just going to stay home. Don't be surprised when following the following Sunday or continually, consistently thereafter comes Sunday morning, coincidentally, here comes the headache. Here the kids start fighting. Uh, the spouse, you know, you get in this spousal kind of uh, argument, you know, something say something causes you and your spouse to kind of lock horns. You know what I'm saying? Have any of you guys discovered how easy it is to argue with your spouse on Sunday morning? Why do you think that is? And so if he sees, if the devil sees, or the demonic hordes, you understand, uh, that these are the things that will keep you from being in the word from being in fellowship or being in worship, well, he'll have found a way to slow down and interrupt your walk with God. We give place, we give way. But if you don't give him that opportunity, you resist the temptation, you forge on, you set in your heart that you are going to be with the people of God, getting into the word of God, giving the expression of your heart, your worship to God, you'll find he'll flee. So submit to God, rely on the grace of God, resist the devil, he will flee. But if we don't submit to God, guys, we can't effectively resist the devil. Now, I should also say this. The devil loves loopholes. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, he will flee. You have the promise of the word of God. But there's no guarantee for how long, right? I mean, you may find yourself needing to resist him in the same area again and again throughout the course of your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not a one and done, I resisted him, you know, glad that's over forever kind of a deal. Therefore, we revert back, right? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Listen, your fight is not finished until you are face to face with Jesus Christ. And as a side note here, as long as we're talking about resisting the devil and all of that, uh, let me just share with you that the Bible doesn't teach in any way that a believer can be uh, you know, possessed by the devil or by a demon. Some people wonder, have questions about that. I should also say this, nor is it required of a third party to be set free from demonic oppression, okay? Now, an unbeliever can be possessed, and it may very well take a believer to be instrumental in seeing them set free. We see that in the New Testament, don't we? With Jesus and the apostles and all. 
Uh, and guys, and I'm not saying that it's not wise to have other believers praying with you or praying for you in a situation whereby you're struggling or there's spiritual warfare, whatever the situation may be. I'm simply saying that God has given every believer, are you hearing me? God has equipped every believer the same uh, with more than sufficient tools to resist the devil and be set free from his oppression. The Bible is clear. You might just write it down and read it later. It's Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, and there you'll discover that, you know, Jesus Christ has disarmed demonic powers and principalities, having made a public spectacle of them through his work upon the cross, okay? So the blood of Jesus Christ has made you more than a conqueror in Jesus' name. Uh, In Christ, here's what we like to say, right? The little uh, catchphrase. In Christ, we don't fight for victory, but we fight from victory. Big difference, remember that. And though we're all susceptible to spiritual warfare, uh, I would also encourage you guys with this. It's generally the sheep that strays to the fringes of the fold that finds itself in the clutches uh, being devoured by the wolf. The closer the sheep is to the shepherd, do you understand what I'm saying? The safer it is. What then is the application? It's found in verse eight, uh, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Guys, this is both an invitation and a promise. I would encourage you to look at this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's kind of like the final piece of the puzzle. This is like the follow through or the finish line of the two previous imperatives. You know, uh, submit to God, uh, resist the devil. Uh, You know, it's not gonna do you much good in the end to submit to God and to resist the devil's attack if you then fail to draw near to God. Or maybe I should say it this way. Am I truly submitted to God or resisting the devil if I decide to keep my distance from God rather than drawing near to God? If I'm satisfied on the fringes of the fold, it's probably not a matter of if, but only a matter of when uh, I'll find myself repeating those old problems, uh, old patterns of the flesh, walking in the ways of the world, being taken captive is the way the Bible describes it, uh, by the devil. You know, the whole point, family, in submitting to God and resisting the the devil is so that I can then draw near uh, to God. And trust me when I tell you that as a believer, it behooves you and only benefits you to get as close to God as you can possibly get, okay? And here's the precious promise. When you set your heart to draw near to God, again, be it in prayer, be it in worship, the word 
confession of sin, if you confess your sin, he is faithful just to forgive you, to cleanse you and all. Uh, It could be through fellowship. It could be through seeking godly counsel, the general demeanor of your life. When you go to the store, you're being cognizant of the fact that God is with you. You're drawing near to him. It is an an intentional uh, act on the behalf of your will to set him as the priority of your life. When you draw near to him, here's the precious promise, God will draw near to you. He closes the distance at half the time, you know what I'm saying? What a difference between the old covenant and the new. You know, when you read through your Old Testament, when you study the old covenant, under the old covenant, there was a definite distance that God demanded of his people. You remember in the burning bush passage when Moses was coming upon it, we read where God said, do not draw near this place. Take off your sandals, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Perhaps you remember when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and he gathered them around Mount Sinai. He told Moses, set a boundary, put a definite distance between me and the people so that they can't approach it. The mountain, the idea being don't draw near. Sinful man had to keep his distance from God being holy and righteous. But now, under the new covenant, come on somebody, God says to man, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. In other words, that ground Those boundaries have been bridged by the blood of Jesus Christ and we are invited to draw near to God based on the atoning blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. Do you see what this says? When God says draw near to me and and his response is I will draw near to you, do you know what that says to you? That says that God wants a relationship with you. Yes, you know, it doesn't say draw near to me and uh, I will save you, although God does. You know, from that attack or that, you know, as you submit and you're drawing near, he will draw you in, right? Or it doesn't say uh, draw near to me and I will forgive you, though God certainly does. But I want you to see that those things are the means to the end that God is looking for and that is he wants to draw near to you. He wants this intimate, close relationship with you. And family, as much as drawing near to God serves as the follow-through on the previous imperatives, it's also what the exhortations of the rest of the chapter are predicated upon. In other words, uh, and we'll look at them here, but as you follow on uh, there in verse 8, drawing near to God serves the purifying of our hearts and our hands. It shows the true nature, it shows us the true nature of our sin. It causes us to want to build others up rather than tear others down. It keeps us mindful of the eternal perspective and desirous to do the right thing both before God and to others. You see, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. But these things are under the umbrella or within the context of drawing near to God. It's in drawing near to God that our hands are cleansed, that our hearts are purified. We don't clean up our lives and then come to God. That's like waiting until you get well before you go see a doctor. 
we come to him, we draw near to him, predicated upon the blood of Jesus Christ, and he cleanses us, right? Jesus said the one who's already clean just needs his feet washed. In other words, the Lord, and you remember, he washed their feet. Do you remember that? Jesus did the work. And, and I could go back and explain that to you, I guess. Well, okay, I will. Um, you know, when, uh, I just don't want to keep you too long, but uh, when back in the day, in, in the Lord's day, you know, the, the homes would have primarily dirt floors there in the, and uh, they would take a bath and then they would get out of the bath and as they went over to the bed, their feet would get dirty, right? So they'd have the little um, basin of water there by the bed and they'd just wash their feet then they'd get in bed. So he's like, well, the one who's already clean only needs to wash their feet and then they're completely clean. Well, you know, the Lord has cleansed you by his blood. You are clean. But how many of you realize when we walk through the world, sometimes we pick up a little dirt on our feet. We drift. The Lord says, man, I'll wash your feet. You draw near to me, right? And he's the one who purifies the heart. And we should note, ladies and gentlemen, that the hands and the heart are in concert. Did you see that? You know, my belief will determine and be displayed in my behavior. And the idea behind this word purify is one of faithfulness. In other words, be true in your heart toward God as opposed to this double-minded action of loving the world and, and being unfaithful to God in your heart. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, guys, context is everything. He's not saying that as believers we're all gloom and doom and devoid of Joy, you know, some people think that if you laugh, like you must be in sin or something. Uh, you know, like, a, like having a sense of humor is a problem. No, the Bible teaches that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Jesus gives us true joy. My joy, he said, I give. That the Bible would say, unspeakable and filled or full of glory, right? Well, what he's saying here, again, in the context, he's talking about coming out of this first part of chapter 4. He's saying, look, quit celebrating sin and see it for what it is, okay? Be sober and serious. Turn from your sin. Put it out of your lives, Remember Paul told the Corinthians, therefore come out from among them, says the Lord. Do not touch that which is unclean. Too often we make jokes about our sin when we should be mourning over our sin. And it's as we draw near to God that we're able to see our sin for what it is. It's when Isaiah was in the presence of the Lord that he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am unclean. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst an unclean people. It was when Daniel saw the Lord that he fell as though dead before him. It was when Peter knew and recognized the Lord that he said, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. It's when John saw him there in the first chapter of the book of Revelation as he was, and he fell before him as dead, and he could, there, was like, there was no breath left in him. When you draw near to the holiness of God, you see, you will be undone. You will see your sin for what it is. And it's there that we're convicted and broken and compelled to find cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the same principle that Jesus spoke of when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's that inherent blessing in recognizing who we are before God, being broken over our sin in the sight of God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Guys, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The way up is down. The lowly one becomes the lifted one. David said that like this. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up, he, notice, he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon the rock and established my steps. It's the Lord who lifts us up and establishes our steps. In Isaiah 57, we read, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him, notice, who has a contrite or broken and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones think about that now listen I'm not asking you to pray that God would humble you I think that's could be a be careful what you ask for kind of prayer God is more than able to humble you if that's what's required. But much better, as we see here in the book of James, that we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Be sober to who he is and who we are not. You see that? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and then he will lift you up. He will establish your footing. You remember what happened when Peter was sinking there in the waves, Lord, save me. Wham, the Lord was right there, lifted him up and established his footing. I don't know, maybe that's a word for you. Maybe you're sinking in the waves of sin or distress or discouragement or whatever the case may be. Cry out to the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, in verse 11, guys, we're going to shift gears here. He says, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. There's another imperative, right? He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy, who are you to judge another? Again, if I'm drawing near to the Lord, if I'm humbling myself in the sight of the Lord, I'll recognize my own sin for what it is. Therefore, the follow-up is that I won't be slandering or incriminating or criticizing or coming against anyone else. I got enough sin in my own life than to single out someone else's. Some people, it seems, they believe their gift of the Holy Spirit is the, the, the fault finder. You know. Uh, and, and guys, it goes back to getting right with God will result in me getting right or being right with others. Okay? 
Jesus said it like this, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? But he says, look, a plank, a big four by four post is in your own eye. He says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So listen, it's, it's interesting how readily uh, we see in others what we're absolutely blind to in ourselves. You know how come you see it so readily in someone else? Because you're familiar with it in your own life. If you didn't know what it was, you wouldn't recognize it. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to take time necessarily to elaborate on any one example. Man, I've had people come to me over the years about things. Either they you know, perceive or believe they perceive in me or someone else. And you know, that happens from time to time. That's fine. None of us are uh, perfect or impervious to fault, whatever. But it completely blows my mind how regularly the very thing they're pointing out is so obvious or out of control in their own lives. You know, they just can't see it. But Jesus would say, hey, examine your own heart and life in the sight of God. You know, deal with the issue in your own life before you, and so in other words, he's not saying that you, there's not room for encouragement or exhortation or coming alongside. I mean, he says, you know, it's okay to help remove the speck from your brother's eye, so long as you've dealt with the log in your own first, right? You're recognizing, see, you see the humility here that's coming into play and the rightness of it. Guys, again, he's not saying that we should that we should turn a blind eye uh, to sin or pretend nothing's wrong when something is. That's not, that's not what's happening here. The Bible is clear on those matters. But there's no way that I can know the motives of the heart of another. And that's what he's talking about. The only one who can judge the heart is the one who knows the inner secrets and motives of the heart. And that's God. God says, I alone search the heart. I test the mind. And I will render to each one according to their works, you see. When I set myself as judge, jury, and hangman, I assume the position of God. And I set myself over and above the law. Now, what law? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? No. Is he talking about the 600 plus laws, uh, you know, the law of Moses? No. What law? The same law. Ladies and gentlemen, remember, in the ancient world, you're going to get this letter, you're going to read it. Do you remember the law I brought to your attention as we began our time here today? It's that law of love that he brought up in chapter 2. If I'm slandering, if I'm speaking against someone, if I'm coming against them, criticizing them, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm setting myself over them. Remember, it's pride that causes me to set myself above another. God resists the proud. When I'm walking in humility, uh, it just won't be in me to arrogantly judge another. Guys, I have enough problems of my own, you see. Now, look at verse 13. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will uh, go to such and such a city and spend a year there and buy and sell and make a profit where, look, man, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
For what is your life? Think about that. It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Family, do you see the common thread of contrasting pride and arrogance with humility and dependence upon God? And to reiterate the point, he's not saying that we shouldn't have plans um, or think about the future. He's saying that we shouldn't pridefully presume upon a path. We should humbly depend upon the Lord. Okay? We forget. Guys, we forget. We're not in control. God is in control. Uh, We start talking about what we're going to do in a year from now. You know? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't know what's going to happen on our way home from church. I mean, we just, just, you know, we measure our lives in years. Moses said, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. How many days old are you, do you know? Some, many more than others. For what is your life? You know, when you're young, you feel like you'll live forever. 30 seems, you know, when you're 18, 30 seems like, man, when I was 18, when I was a senior in high school, I genuinely thought there was a, a, a significant chance I'd be dead before I was 30, you know? Not because I felt like I, that was the day that my, you know, like I could just die of some old, you know, natural, but, you know, I just seemed so far out there, and, and the trajectory of my life, I just thought, you know, that's a long way, you, you get about 26, 27, 20, like 30 don't seem quite so far out there anymore, you know, you think, well, you know, but when I'm 50, well, then you turn 48, 49, and you're like, ah, oh, 50's all right, you know, and just, and just on and on it, it goes, but you get a little older, and you begin to realize you've been around enough to, to, to see the vulnerability, the brevity of life. David wrote, Lord, make me to know my end. And notice again, what is the measure of my days? That I may know how frail I am. You might write it down and look it up later. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Here's the the point though, Luke 12, 16 through 21. But here's the point. We live and move and have our being at the permission of God, okay? He is the giver and taker of life. And so rather than presume arrogantly, James says, why not, why, how about we uh, live in humility and acknowledge our dependency upon the Lord? He says, our life is, is like a wisp of steam that vanishes so quickly. You know, you, you, you live out on the West Coast, every morning it's like there's a little fog that rolls in from the, from the ocean, you know, but by mid-morning it's just burned off. That's kind of what he's talking about. Like it just, it's there, but then before you know, it's just, whew. you know, next time you boil a 
pot of water. Just kind of focus on the, the vapor. And think about that. How long is it lasting? In light of eternity, that's our lives. And that's why it's so important that we live our lives with a view toward the eternal. Look at verse 17. And we can close here. Um, are you our close, Karen? Okay, so just whenever you're done there is fine. But verse 17, look, he says, Therefore, again, you see, in light of all of this, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Have you ever noticed as you read through the book of James how big he is on being a doer of the word and not a hearer only? Ladies and gentlemen, he just laid out a litany, a list of the kinds of things that should constitute our lives as believers. And honestly, he's been speaking of such things throughout his entire letter. You go back from the very, you know, count it all joy when you fall in various tribulation, knowing he talks about how to endure tribulation, how, what our attitude should be in temptation, and, and on and on and on and on, right? Throughout the whole, very practical. But just in this chapter, he's established our responsibility to submit to God, to resist the devil, to draw near to God, to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, to see our sin for the offense that it is and turn from it, to walk in humility, to not speak ill of our family, our brothers and sisters in the body, to seek the heart of God in our planning rather than presume upon life arrogantly. And now he says, now you know that if this is what you should do, but you choose not to, it's sin. Guys, we refer to it as the sin of what? Omission. Listen, there is sins of commission, yes? Those, those uh, we commit sin, that we do those things that we know we shouldn't, we actively engage in sin, this is the sin of omission. What is that? It's not doing what's right. Not doing what we should do. When I know something is the right thing to do, yet I choose not to. Family, this is hardcore, but you need to know it. It's sin just the same as knowing something is the wrong thing to do, yet I choose to. It, it, it is what it is. So God help us, right? To live a life with a view toward eternity. To lead lives of humility and repentance. Loving God with all our heart, with all our soul and all our mind. And loving one another as ourselves. I tell you what, you do that, you let love rule your life, you'll fulfill all of the law. And God will be glorified in your life. Amen? Let's pray to that end. God, we thank you for your word. The plain instruction and practical application. And I pray, God, that... Uh, we be found as doers of your word from the heart. Loving you, loving others, walking in humility, 
our lives bringing you glory. And family, I, I think after a message like this with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'd be remiss to not at least give you the opportunity. Uh, you know what repentance looks like. Submit to God. Uh, don't be found fighting against God. Unconditionally surrender to Him. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. He wants a relationship with you. But it's only found in Jesus Christ who has loved you and has given himself for you. So I'm encouraging you to turn from your sin, to trust in him today. And maybe everybody here knows Jesus. You know, you walk with the Lord, and man, that's, that's wonderful. But maybe not. Maybe you've come here today, maybe someone's invited you, or uh, you've just found us online or drove by. I don't know your story but you're here. Maybe you've been here a time or two and the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart. Well, I want to encourage you not to let pride stand in the way that God would resist you, but that you would humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and receive the grace that he offers freely to you. And so if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart and today is a day of salvation for you and you want to open the door, I just want to pray for you. Would you be willing to humble yourself, to identify yourself, just raise your hand and if I see your hand, I'll say so. God bless you. You can put it back down. Anybody else? Today's your day. Guys, don't worry about who's beside you or who you know is around. Just This is between you and the Lord. This is the most important moment when you're deciding, Right? Will I surrender to God? Will I submit to God? Or will I stand against God? Because there's no two ways about it. Anyone else? All right. And again, guys, I trust that if I were to say, I want to talk to you, family, I want to talk to you, believer, you found in your heart yourself resisting, kind of taking your stand, kind of holding off, kind of being on the fringe, being on the fray, keeping your distance from God, kind of flirting with a little sin and, and, and still trying to stay in that place. I, I trust that would uh, resonate with a, a number of us here. But I'm not going to call you out on that. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that right now without me necessarily uh, drawing attention to that which you're struggling with, okay? But I'm encouraging you just the same. Why be found fighting against God? I mean, think it through. Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sin is like scarlet, I'll wash you white like snow. Right? God wants to do that in all of us. Draw near to him. Set your heart to draw near to him. And he will embrace you. It's a prodigal kind of a, of a scene, isn't it? When the prodigal says, you know what, I'm going to go back. And there's the father looking and he embraces him and he puts the signet ring on him and he says, my son, right? My daughter. And if today is the day of receiving Jesus Christ for the very first time, I just want to encourage you, as we say, confess, as the Bible tells us to our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us. And so you can just pray something along the lines of, you know what, God, I am a sinner. I'm asking you to forgive me. 
from the heart. That you would cleanse me. That you would make me new. Jesus, that you would take up your home in my heart, come into my heart, into my life. Just pour your spirit out upon me and fill me to the overflow. Help me to live my life for you from this day forward. And thanks for putting my name in your book of life. Guys, I'm just giving you a second here, just a minute to just kind of meditate on that which maybe God may be speaking to you or dealing with you or... And guys, I'm not... Here's the other thing. I'm not trying to say you need to conjure something up if there's nothing there. If you're walking with the Lord and honoring the Lord, then praise God for that. Be strengthened in your position. Continue to follow after him. But if there's something, and you only, only you know between you and the Lord, we'll give it to him. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Surely you are good and greatly to be praised. We thank you, God, that you've cleansed us. Lord, we're asking, would you, would you wash our feet? It's so easy for us to say no, like Peter, you know, but then we remember your words that if you don't wash us, then we have no part. And so, Lord, we're humbling ourselves. Wash us. Empower us. Pour your spirit out upon us that we might be the witness you've called us to be. That our light would so shine that you might be glorified in our lives. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's rise to our feet. Ladies and gentlemen, may the Lord bless you and may he be with you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and cause his face to shine upon you. And may his goodness and mercy follow you and may his peace rest upon you. May his word dwell richly in you. Bring forth fruit for his glory from your life. May you find yourself contagious with the message of the gospel. And, I, you know, we pray that our little 14-day uh, challenge has been a blessing for you so far. And there's no condemnation, but there is exhortation, right? Let's, let's, let's be doers. Let's do what we can to uh, just honor the word. If you have any need for prayer, we encourage you as we uh, dismiss that you come forward. That's why we're here, man. If, you're, if you feel uh, renewed and restored and revived, then praise God. If you want a little extra like, man, I could just use that, that extra accountability, that measure of solidifying my resolve, then come on down. We'd love to pray for you, whatever the case may be. Father God, we just thank you for uh, all that you are. 
And we pray, Lord, now that you would go before and have your way in our lives. As always, we ask that you would establish our steps, that you would ordain our thoughts, that our conversation might be edifying to one another and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday. And uh, don't neglect the opportunities during the week to be in the word with one another.